0: Welcome to Meaning What? I'm your host, Mason Urshanel. On today's episode, I talk to model and artist Diana Oliphant about art institutions, Andy Warhol, and who gets to determine what does and doesn't qualify as fine art. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Um, this interview with Diana Uh, was originally recorded over the summer, August, I believe. You'll notice by some of the current events that we talk about in the interview. So just a little bit of context there. This was actually one of the first interviews that I ever recorded for the show before Sean was a part of the project, before I had a real handle on um, what direction I wanted to take the podcast in, quite frankly. But we talk about some really interesting um, sort of viewpoints In this, there are things that Diane and I sort of disagree on or approach in a different way, and I thought that it would be really good to um, share this conversation with you. Since I won't be doing a break in the episode, it's a little bit shorter of a conversation than the ones that we've been having. I wanted to, up top, just remind you that if you haven't already, please rate or review the show. It's the number one way that we are going to grow an audience and the number one way that, frankly, we can advertise this uh, show on the platforms where people are going to hear it. Also, if you are an artist or a creator or if you know someone and there's a topic that you want to bring to the show, you can email us at MeaningWhatPod at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter. That's at MeaningWhatPod. Um, Also, you know, give us a follow on Twitter and help spread the word there as well. All right, enough from me. I'll let you get to the show. And we will see you next Thursday with another brand new conversation. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Let's start with your background. It's always kind of a weird question to ask somebody how they got started in art. I feel like a lot of us have just always been doing it. Yeah. But if you could talk a little bit to like how you ended up sort of pursuing that as a career choice or as kind of life path.
1: I mean, yes, I always was interested in art since I was a little kid. My dad was a photographer when I was growing up, and my parents were very encouraging of doing things like going to museums. Um, We had a family friend who was an art curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and she afforded me some really amazing experiences as a small child. I stayed in St. Peter's Basilica in Tivoli, Italy that was originally built by Horace, contemporary of Homer.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) I was in fifth grade. And so I mean, like, and her husband took us through a tour of the Coliseum where he could name literally every pillar that was just like, so I I think without my parents encouraging me to like follow my heart in that regard. I mean, I did say, I remember um, being outside in the garden and saying, mom and dad, when I grow up, I want Marjorie's job. And my dad laughing and being like, you can't have her job. You have to be like related to aristocracy to get a job like that in London. (laughs) But when I was 19, 18, um, I did a work study there, which was, you know, two weeks of working in the sculpture and fine metals department. And she set me up with backroom tours of a bunch of different museums in London The British Museum was dope. I got to hold a Botticelli painting and a Degas painting and the Guggenheim Bible. It looks like a Harry Potter uh, library, like it's stacks and stacks, like three flights up with little tiny ladders that pull out drawers.
0: Oh, I can only imagine what it's super fucking cool.
1: And so, with that encouragement, I went to college um, with a focus in fine art, and I ended up studying a lot of so, like social studies, uh, sociology stuff too. But I graduated college in three years, and my final year was a full year of independent study, working on uh, senior thesis and art senior thesis. Um, and that's when I created like a real full collection of art and started selling art at like gallery prices.
0: So is that sort of the point that you kind of consider crossing over the threshold of like, now I'm a working artist? Yes. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, I was out of college and what do you do with an arts degree?
0: <laughs> it's a great question
1: um, and I started modeling because it's you know it's a high rate of pay and I, in my mind that gave me time to do things like paint
0: so because I know you through your modeling that's how we for lack of a better word that's how we met on Instagram mm-hmm. do you consider that part of your art practice or is it something separate I
1: consider modeling more along the lines of helping others do art it's hard for me to claim ownership over a photo I'm modeling for. If I'm taking the photo, I, I feel like that's a piece of art that I created. But as a model, I, it's it's an artistic thing, but I don't consider it like my art, if that makes sense.
0: I think I gotcha. Uh, do you think that part of that viewpoint comes from being a artist and, and photographer yourself?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like I started modeling really uh, doing figure modeling for artists and again like from that perspective like how are you going to claim ownership over someone's painting you know
0: right I mean I think there's an interesting sort of historical conversation there of especially when we talk about kind of representation in, in art and institutions right because traditionally kind of in painting we talk a lot about the artist, and they are by and large European men who are oftentimes painting, you know, figures that are not men, um, and sometimes not European. And so the conversation around like who owns that sort of depiction is kind of a kind of an interesting and sticky one. I'm curious to hear any thoughts you have on that in particular, given your background.
1: I mean, I think the painter owns the image hmm. a lot of the time. Like, like artists, like uh Degas he's just going to the ballet and painting ballerinas that are dancing you know those ballerinas have no real ownership over the paintings that he created um Toulouse-Lautrec painted um prostitutes uh, cabaret dancers yeah um and they're just going into like basically public spaces and creating art from they're truly like I mean, like, their imagination. Sure, it's informed by reality, but um, it's not a photo.
0: Well, then I guess the next sort of obvious step in that line of thinking is what happens when it does become a photo. Um, Because as a photographer myself and somebody who's really interested in sort of the politics of, of art history around photography, there are real interesting and I think often legitimate questions about not only who owns a photograph but who has sort of the rights to make photographs about whom you know Mm -hmm. um who who gets to tell whose story so i i'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on like on how that changes i guess right between one medium and and another
1: i think it is a complicated one um i will say that i don't think that photography becomes fine art until it's printed until it becomes a physical, tangible thing. Um, And I think the shift from uh, analog to digital photography, in a lot of ways, cheapened photography. And I think a lot of people agree with that. Um, And then the ownership aspect, I think that's an incredibly complicated and often like very political conversation. Is it okay for a photographer to go into a war zone and photograph death and child suffering and, and I mean, like, to a large degree, I think we all know that's important, but w- why aren't they interfering?
0: I think it's kind of a two-pronged question about, like, who is telling the story, mm-hmm. you know, about who, yeah. but also, like, what is the value of that story being told, right? Where is the sort of line between, and, and this is a line that is getting blurred, I think, increasingly, but where where is the line between, for lack of a better word, entertainment, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, information meant to be enlightening, right?
1: Yeah. Entertainment and, like, who's profiting off this image? Are you taking advantage of marginalized people for your own benefit?
0: Right. And and if you're not, sort of, what does that look like, right? Can a government be photographic? Like, I'm thinking about the um, photographers in the 1930s and 40s, um, Diane Arbus and Walker Evans, and and those guys who were photographing, you know, rural America and sharecroppers and the depressed peoples of American cities under the presumption that they were kind of spreading knowledge of those groups. But like you said, they were not directly intervening and and were largely, at least in the long term, kind of profiting off of that work.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a gray area, right? Because even if they are profiting off of it, the sharing of information and the information that is so powerful with an image is still
0: important right and there are a lot of things that are difficult to i would argue are difficult to communicate even without sort of that that visual process especially when we are not as a culture or maybe even to some extent as a species we're not hardwired to take in information through just reading
1: right it's not emotional enough
0: right exactly there's something about sort of the act of making eye contact no matter how separated that is that gets people invested
1: i think that um, what we're seeing in the black lives matter movement is particularly poignant to this that you know unfortunately seeing videos of black people shot is the only way that like people want to throw their hands up in the air and be like oh my god this is happening this is real and to share those videos is violence like i really believe that but at the same time, like we need to see them. It's a gray area.
0: Especially those of us who are not living that day to day.
1: Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I'm not to say that I mean black people know that's happening. I don't think they need to see them. And that's why it's violent. Sharing them on social media, like you're just gonna traumatize the the people of color and black people in your circles in your life.
0: Right. Well, that brings me to kind of a related point of like how I'm trying to think of of how to approach this. Like Making art in a time like this, where for better or for worse, no matter the level of legitimacy, like the art world in its most massive sense exists on social media, right? And that is most people's sort of connection to, especially uh, communities that don't have access to institutions for one reason or another, are getting a great deal of their sort of art exposure on social media. And so I think there's this really interesting question about how how you make art in that sort of space, uh, especially if your art is not like related to the social uh, issues at hand, right? If you're not making art about Black lives, or if you're not a Black artist, or if you're not um, an Indigenous artist, you know, how do you, what work is worth making? And and sort of how do you approach that?
1: I think it's a complicated question that I've definitely thought about in my own work. And and I think it's easier for me to do that with photography versus, I mean, like my figure series and painting are paintings of me. They're all self-portraits. And not to say that I, I mean, I did a commission work for a friend of mine, um, painted a black woman six months ago, but that's a commission work. Versus like this series that I've started years ago. Um, And not to say that I couldn't start a new series that just amplifies the, the beauty of blackness. But I've been real thoughtful to include more black women in my photography. There aren't there just aren't as many Black models in Seattle as there are white models. And there's probably a good reason for some of that, for, uh, and a complicated number of reasons, and one of them being that, you know, racism exists. Right. There's also just not, a, you know, the white people would take up most of the population of Seattle. Um,
0: right, and, and that sort of trickles down then. Um, if most of the population is white, then most of the people making art are white, and most of the people who are sort of gatekeeping are white are white even more yep. so than in um, other areas yep I think maybe the difficult part of that equation is like what happens when you do live in a place like that right where there are fewer voices of color or fewer voices of sort of any minority group.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I I feel like my responsibility as a photographer is to seek out maybe less known women to photograph. And I'm really lucky that I have a good friend who's a much better photographer than I am, who is happy to recommend models of color to me. And that's a a resource I definitely take advantage of. Um, But it's definitely on me and all photographers to see that your portfolio and the photos you take are a representative of our society as a whole and that's not just people of color but bigger bodies
0: absolutely and i think that that can be carried over into almost any art practice
1: or i mean just like community in general right like you know white people and um you know conventionally attractive people are more likely to get hired for the manager
0: job right and are, are more likely to get any opportunity yep Which is sort of the toxicity of bringing culture onto social media, which is something that I personally struggle with as somebody who's not very good with sort of operating in that space. So much of the art world revolves around not only the expectation that you exist in the social media space, but also this expectation that you know how it works and operate fully effectively in it.
1: I don't really think that's true. (laughs) No? I mean, like you can build an art presence on Instagram or social media, but there are many people that I've worked with that are, I mean, like there's one person I'm thinking of who has that I got to model for that it was the most art directed and the most money invested into an artistic shoot that I've ever done. And he does not have any social media and he shows work in galleries in New York and his prints are out of this world amazing like the ink almost sparkles it's so good um and i think that there's i mean like even just f- scrolling through social media on a pretty regular basis i found an amazing makeup artist yesterday that their personal page has like no makeup on it none and they they're like a world class makeup artist so i don't think that you necessarily have to have social media as an artist to be successful um it's a way to be successful sure but I think real-life networking is always going to take uh, precedent. And if we're talking about gatekeeping, there's a lot more gatekeeping that goes into that.
0: Oh, definitely. And that is sort of the other side of the coin of social media, is that it is an opportunity to sort of sidestep a lot of that gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a double-edged sword, too, right? In that we as people, we are not infrequently prone to create our own gates, right? In whatever community we're a part of. And so I think it's kind of interesting, the tension that comes up in social media, because you are right. Like there is a lot of value in the social media sphere as a thing to kind of sidestep it. And it is not the only way to make it happen, but it is, it's sort of inseparable from this kind of conversation about who has access to what. Yeah. And social media on its own like not everybody has access to that
1: i mean the conversation about kids staying home from school people in this country don't have com- there are people that don't have computers that do not have access to internet period right a smartphone is expensive i know you basically have to have a smartphone today but i mean like the, i new iphones like what twelve hundred dollars
0: right well and there are a lot of people who have to have it or not just don't or don't live in a place where even if they did have access to a device, they could make use of it. Mm-hmm. Right. It is an interesting thing too, especially being just speaking personally, being a person who is from California and, and has had a art career entirely on the West Coast in the Greater Bay Area, it can be really difficult to, you know, think about the world outside of that sort of sphere. And that becomes only all the more obvious when you think about just how large this country is.
1: I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I grew up on the West Coast. I was born in California. I've driven up and down the West Coast way more times than I could possibly even count. Um, Poverty doesn't exist on the West Coast like it does in the Midwest. My sister lived and worked in social work in St. Louis. And she, after Mike Brown was killed, took me to Ferguson. Ferguson is a level of poverty that I've never seen on the West Coast anywhere. Not in a small town, nowhere.
0: I, I would even, there is a sort of sheltering um, of a lot of kinds of poverty um, on the West Coast yes. that don't exist throughout. I was born in California and I lived here for the first 11, 10 or 11 years of my life. And then me and my family spent seven or eight, maybe nine years in Eastern Pennsylvania, which, you know, was old steel country. And there's just not, it's, it's not just the poverty of it is the entire life experience that is so different from anything that exists here it is difficult to understand unless, like you're saying, unless you are in that place.
1: Yeah. I mean, and like, we know that these systems, they're set up to work like that. I mean, redlining is a really good example of how we've pushed Black communities into poor places out of the way of white life.
0: Right. and And how even when you remove those sorts of systems from the formal structure of government or of community, um, how they persist they
1: still exist, yeah, right. I was talking to someone recently who works in um, mortgages for houses, mm-hmm. and he was saying that it's I mean like the mortgage bias is still alive and well. <laughs> And that, you know, after redlining, it didn't, nothing really changed.
0: I can totally imagine that, you know, and we see that across lines of credit and Mm -hmm. school loans and federal funding. So having your sort of knowledge and experience in formal art institutions, um, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on not just increasing representation, but also sort of effective ways of coming to terms with the... Um, the systems that have given us the sort of Western art institution.
1: I mean, when I was 18 and doing that work study and had really all of these very elitist art experiences curated for me, I went to one art show that wasn't curated for me that I just saw in, you know, a street magazine. And it was Andy Warhol versus Banksy. I was a big fan of Banksy then. And I've always been real skeptical of Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. But I walk into this gallery and they've removed pieces of street art, like just cut through concrete walls to bring in these Banksy pieces that are next to Andy Warhol's soup can drawings. And so like first you have this really amazing piece of art next to, honestly, just crap from Andy Warhol. And one was meant for the public that was taken out of a public space to create this bullshit conversation that is a commodity that you have to pay to get into versus Andy Warhol, who, I mean, like, sure, made stuff for mass consumption, but was a capitalist elitist, like, to his core. And I realized then that I didn't want to work in a curatorial capacity. I did not want to work in a museum or a gallery because they're elitist as fuck and they're completely removed from the experience of being an artist and making art. Um, and I think, I mean, this was all before Facebook existed, but the rise of like Instagram and like a uh, visual social media didn't exist then. And I do think that you are right in saying that social media to some degree, evens the playing field and makes things like like galleries, recognize that there's value in art that they wouldn't have considered because so much of the fine art world is someone has to say that it's good someone who buys art and spends lots of money on art and then everyone else is like oh my god it's so good right um when like something like andy warhol like i i just like his art is not complicated or well done enough to me to be worth much
0: (laughs) Well, and and he is, I've always felt like he's a really excellent example of um, the kind of slippery slope of the capitalist artist, because so little of the work that he is attributed to was created by him, right?
1: Oh, I mean, like, that's kind of normal. I worked for a very well-known artist in college, and I did 90% of her
0: paintings. I mean, 90% of a
1: painting, she'd finish it, but I'm doing all of the underlayer and whatever
0: which is a I'm no painter but as I understand it is a long standing tradition in painting.
1: Yes. Andy Warhol though like screen printing is a really not complicated um art form. Like it is incredibly easy to do. And I think that for me and sure call me an elitist but like art has to have Um, talent and skill behind it for me to be excited about it.
0: (laughs) And I think that that is one huge argument for exposing young people to not just to art, but to art making, because there requires some level of understanding of how a thing is done. Yes. That is difficult to kind of get across.
1: Well, and why why would you expect a random person off the street to know what goes into a lithoprint?
0: Right. But then also the sort of flip side of that coin too, is like who, who and what determines skill and success too. Right. It's subjective. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, And that is one thing that I will say, the digitizing of photography as a medium has not, I would not say it's successfully addressed, but it's kind of opened a door to, um, is that there are, there are people who are making digital art that I do not understand. <laughs> And there are people who are making digital art that is clearly in the vein of sort of the the digital world that Google and others have kind of created right It is in answer to that um, but there are also people who are some of some of the most fascinating art I think personally out of that are the people who are looking at the sort of ways that digital art. And the digital space is supposed to function and making art that is designed to break that. And it's interesting when a medium like photography, which is, I can't say, truly democratized from the beginning, right? It it was a middle class sort of hobby. But then it has always had a level of accessibility that things like sculpture or... I just agree with you on
1: that. Okay. Accessibility to a camera 50 years ago. Was not, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, anyone can pick up a pencil and learn to draw, but uh, cameras were expensive, and then having access to a dark room, and you had to have someone teach you, or you know, you have to have the money to go have your film developed. I think is a pretty big barrier to entry.
0: Right, and I'm not saying that it is truly universally accessible, but I also don't think that you can argue that the rise of Kodak, you know, didn't sort of open up those gates. You still had to have the money to do it, but you didn't have to be a chemist anymore. You could buy a camera for 5 or $10 or whatever it was at the time, which was still a lot of money, shoot it, and then have Kodak develop it for you, which kind of created, even before it was really reality, created this sense that photography was a thing that anybody could could access right it was sort of this thing that
1: it became more accessible
0: right and so it's interesting to think about the sort of digitizing of the medium in those terms right is that it is sort of a additional step forward and it's still not truly accessible right like we were talking about before you still have to have access to a camera or you have to have access to the phone, the phone right and then you have to have access to a way to share it whether that be printing it or online or whatever but there's this sort of complicated tension there about like the presumption that photography is accessible and then it's its reality of what that that means and i feel like one bonus about digital photography is that it sort of furthers it in that direction and then it also complicates the question of what is a fine art photograph
1: i mean i don't think it really complicates it because Like I said before, I think that uh, it's not fine art until it's printed and a physical, tangible thing. And I say that mostly from the perspective of art sales. Um, Fine art with the capital F has to be valuable and a digital photo on a screen um, isn't. I mean, not to say it's not valuable, but it doesn't have resale
0: value. Traditionally, absolutely. But there are now digital artists who are sort of challenging even that kind of expectation
1: i mean it seems to a degree but you know when you're talking about like stuff like meow wolf where it's now an interactive experience and it's still a commodity
0: yeah and, and that brings us into a sort of larger question about the idea of an art institution of like the museum of ice cream for example which is it's really just a commercial installation it's not a museum it is a advertising vehicle Um, And a a means for people to take interesting photos for Instagram, but it still uses the term museum. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that there's generally a pretty big distinction between museum and gallery in that um, it's not particularly frequent that artists who are alive today <laughs> get to show art in museums and not to say it doesn't happen but by and large um and also museums tend to not have um interactive experiences like art installations that are interactive are not typically something you see in bigger museums
0: although that is beginning to change
1: uh, yeah um, definitely
0: in part and because that museums
1: yeah. museums know that they need the social media buzz and the hashtags in order to
0: Uh, compete. I mean, that brings us to our current moment and that before this pandemic occurred, museums were already beginning to struggle as institutions with how to fund themselves. And that is a multi prong issue, especially here in the United States and with engagement and with just general public interest and, and sort of how to drive those things. But now they are Having to address that on top of an inability to actually have foot traffic and also very legitimate questions about who ends up in a museum. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how museums and to a lesser extent, maybe um, commercial galleries, address this and, and what you think some long term kind of effects might be.
1: I mean... I don't feel like I'm educated enough on the topic to really have an informed opinion. But I mean, like, obviously more people of color on museum boards, more artists of color that are able to speak to their communities and more female artists, quite frankly. <laughs> I think that's that's the first step in um, fighting white supremacy, white patriarchy in in the art world.
0: Right. I am curious about how these sorts of things get escalated when we'll say survival of an institution is is very really, you know, sort of based around the ability to um, to sort of adapt to the moment.
1: I mean, yeah, because uh, I think museums in particular are a reflection of what people want to see. If they don't have exhibits that people want to come see, it's, you know, w- what are they doing? They have to be able to make money. Um but I think having individual pieces in the get like the museum collection are probably more important. My favorite shows to see are always retrospectives. But those are again, mostly after artists are dead, right? <laughs> um, but to have individual pieces of art in the permanent collections, of museums, I think is really important, especially for living artists.
0: Totally. And especially in an industry that revolves around an expectation of um, sort of demonstrable progress on one's own CV. You have to have shows and you have to have residencies and you have to have all of this sort of experience, most of which does not pay.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs)
0: Which is, I think, kind of has to be talked about in regards to these institutions, too. You know, I feel like I am constantly in conversations with people who say things like, oh, we really have to expand representation in art institutions. And we re- we really need to figure out how to get, you know, more kids from poor neighborhoods into the gallery and, and get more kids from working class families making art. And then you look at their institutions sort of programs for, let's say, internships, and none of them are paid.
1: Yeah, or there just aren't any available at all.
0: Right. And part of that is, I think they would push back as budgetary. It's like, you have to have money to pay people money. But it's it's also this question of, like, how do we... I don't see... A museum serves a real purpose of preserving work, right? And history. Um, and that is fraught with so many issues. But if just... Sort of boxing that, right? Like this is an institution that serves a service and a public good and relies on public funding and also commercial funding. You know, how there I would argue that there is a real vested interest in in getting additional folks involved in whatever way they can.
1: I mean, I think there is a vested interest, uh, a facade of vested interest. but I mean, like, especially under the Trump presidency, we're just seeing art programs getting cut and cut and cut and cut. And that's not just in schools, but in museums. And I don't think that we're doing much to get kids from poor and neighborhoods or even middle-class neighborhoods into art programs, into museums. That was my, my experience at the VNA. was that, you know... The people answering phones, receptionists, have two PhDs in art history. It's, I, I, I have a hard time envisioning the fine art world not being an institution of the rich and
0: elite. So then does the answer become shifting the importance of fine art and culture?
1: I think the, that it maybe shifts to the importance of just art in general. And that the importance needs to be taken off the capital F fine art and just in, you know, like I have grown a deeper, much deeper appreciation for craft art, for utilitarian art. And I, I think that even things like the rise of Instagram and slow fashion, that people are realizing that they they want interesting and unique items that they can use, um, which is really an important and not something you saw in like the 90s.
0: And... I wonder if the increased access that technology gives to people to experience art and to make art at all levels has revived, especially right now when, for all intents and purposes, people don't have anything else to do. Yeah. There's this understanding, to some extent, that these sorts of things are important. And I like to hope that it is sort of deprogramming a century of conservative thinkers dismantling the art institutions of the United States, um, And the public understanding that art is important, but I don't know. I don't know if if that is happening or if it is if it is happening in just in a different way. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't really know either. Um, I don't have kids. I've got two friends that have children. I'm kind of disconnected with uh, the art education in America at this point. I used to teach uh, art classes to kids and taught in a boys and girls club for a little while, but it's been five
0: years. And I think that that is a factor that can't be ignored either, is that those of us who are most connected to these issues, who are working artists, who are teaching in art, don't have the connections to, you know, things like education at like the elementary school level, because a lot of us don't have kids and a lot of us won't have kids, either through personal choice or ability, financial or otherwise, or or whatever.
1: Yeah. I looked into starting an after-school arts program specifically for teenagers a few years ago, and there are a lot of art grants out there for um, arts education in particular and arts education for youth. And my barrier to entry in Seattle is that there isn't a place to host it that is reasonable. And I didn't do any like reaching out to like um, bigger institutions or, or like just literally schools. And, you know, with schools, I think there's a lot of liability issues, but places like libraries and community centers, it was really expensive to rent a room for an hour. And, you know, ideally it's longer than an hour. And uh, I just, it was it was a barrier for entry and doing it. Art supplies are expensive like very expensive and not to say that i i probably could have made something happen if i put more effort into it like reaching out to a college i that's my experience um in high school i got to go to the gage academy of fine art um on fridays for free and you know they got a pizza place to sponsor it and it's an art college so they have access to Supplies and like you know uh drawing horses and easels and shit,
0: but there's still this expectation and this need to to have it be a profitable thing, yeah, which i I think that there's no shortage of evidence, of very real tangible evidence that that it is profitable in the long run
1: well, and like how do we we're if we're talking about like monetarily profitable versus like profitable for your your personhood?
0: Right. I think that a lot of times those things on a long enough timeline are intertwined, but it doesn't serve the short term, which is where these conversations in my own experience always begin and end.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I definitely grew up with parents and not just my parents, but everyone's parents were like, man, going to college to be a painter or a musician is just a mistake, like you shouldn't do that. you should go to school and be a lawyer <laughs> like, okay, so today, how many lawyers do we have, and how much debt do you have they accrued to do a job that they're getting paid fifty thousand dollars a year
0: right
1: versus i mean, especially with the rise of digital media, musicians in particular are uh, you know probably an all time uh, demand
0: but are facing their own. Sort of conflicts with with how people consume that sort of media.
1: I, I guess I wasn't thinking specifically um, like art, like musicians making their own work, but that there is work in making like sound design and yeah. like you know um, art adjacent. And same thing with like you know drawing and painting. Get on graphic design,
0: which is knowing some graphic designers myself. It's a whole. That's a whole other monster.
1: Yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> no,
0: it's not for me either. I can do either. it, but I don't like it. <laughs> but I, I mean, I see this in teaching at San Jose State as part of their grad program. San Jose has a very diverse campus. It, the city has the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam and also large populations of people from other Pacific and Asian nations and Black people and Hispanic people. And a lot of the students there who are in undergrad are, you know, first or second generation. They are oftentimes the first people in their family to go to school. And a lot of them are studying things sort of like you're talking about. They are there to be lawyers or they're there for aviation. Um, And they end up taking. Taking art classes because they have to right mm-hmm. which is incredibly enlightening you know i'm 30 we grew up in the same sort of environment of like go to school become a lawyer become a doctor uh i was lucky enough to have a dad who's an artist and a mom who, like her focus was just go to school and get a degree, figure it out later. But there are a lot of people who don't have that for better or for worse. And, and some of my students were really pursuing degrees that they thought would lift them out of poverty and likely would. And so you can't study art in that sort of environment in our culture. There's still that sort of thing that we have to overcome of like, you can make a living doing this, but it's hard and it might not be smart.
1: It's hard. And like, when we talk about You know, if you go to school for a professional degree, you are expecting to be in college for four to six years longer than just undergrad. And I think that that we don't think about pursuing an art versus I mean, arts education, whether I mean, like not in an academic setting, but outside of academia, that working as an artist is incredibly valuable. And if you don't put in that time and effort, um, you're not going to get there. And we were talking earlier about things like internships, but even just having the uh, affordability space to be able to do that, I wouldn't have if I had gone to a private school and came out of college with a ton of debt. I would have had to get a regular nine to five job to pay it off.
0: I mean, I even going to state school, like not having the, you know, having very limited financial backing. Like I mm-hmm. still came out of a public education with a great deal of debt. And and while I'm better off that way than, you know, some people that I know, I am to talk about gatekeeping, right? Like where you go to school matters.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Then And like, you know, who's to say that the difference for me, if I had gone to RISD or NYU for art, Columbia for art, Mm -hmm. would it have been worth paying that much money because of the art connections and nepotism that you get from (laughs) maybe like quite frankly, maybe. Right. I applied for grad school after, after my undergrad and I didn't get in, but I had my favorite professor in college. Tell me, why do you want to go to grad school for MFA? If you have the money to go to grad school for an MFA, just go to New York and live as an artist for two years. Just do that instead and you'll you'll make as many at connections and it'll be worth more of your while unless you want to be a professor and this guy was he was a year off from retirement and way fucking over teaching and he was just like you don't want to be a professor don't do that
0: <laughs> it's valuable to have those sorts of people in your life early on there's some there's some value in somebody going why are you doing this are you doing this because you actually want to or are you doing this because you think that it is the next step but it's what you're supposed to do.
1: Well, and I went to the Evergreen State College, which is arguably the most liberal school in the whole country. Progressive, I don't know how you want to describe it. Anarchist?
0: <laughs> Half the time, I don't know which one really applies.
1: Yeah, are you you're familiar with Evergreen?
0: Uh, just vaguely.
1: There's no grades. Um, you can write your own program. The classes aren't quite classes. You usually take an interdisciplinary program that covers... A variety of subjects and the class sizes are 25 students per teacher or less. Um, and so there's a lot of radical thought that happens because of the less than structured environment. And it just, it, I mean, I can't speak to what it is now, but it attracts a lot of um, alternative faculty and students.
0: Right. If you're of that mindset, that's where you want to end up. And
1: I quite frankly, didn't really want to go there. And having gone to college there, I can't imagine me flourishing in any other college environment.
0: <laughs> I mean, to be perfectly frank, like having gone to a, a California State University, it's very difficult as, as an artist. Like there's some real value in, especially in undergrad, in being exposed and taking classes with people who are completely outside of the art department or even outside of that thinking Um, especially in a place like Sacramento, where there is a a large, moderate, and conservative population who also go to college. But it's difficult to be an artist on that because you have to spend as much, if not more, time outside of your own art practice and outside of that.
1: Well, and with other students who are not committed to making art.
0: Even within the art program, right? Yeah, that was my experience, too. I'd like to end on how you think individuals be they artists or otherwise, can sort of activate this, this sort of change? Is there anything that can be done or are we just sort of, of writing it?
1: I mean, I think everyone, artists or not, um, especially as white people, need to educate themselves. And the first step is understanding perspectives that aren't your own and being a catalyst for information sharing. And, you know, if that comes out in your work, Great if it comes out in other ways, great. But I think that it's it's we need a an education shift in America more than anything. And I I don't have any answers as to how we change the big fine art world. Just like I I don't know how we avoid capitalism. <laughs> right. But education I think is the first step.
0: Thanks for talking to me today. Coming on. Yeah,
1: it's a good conversation.
0: Um, where can people find you?
1: Uh, DianaJeanOlafont.com. Instagram Diana underscore jean underscore o buy my art i love it when people spend money on paintings (laughs) stop buying ikea crap and get some real art on your walls
0: directly from the people that make it yes please it's a good first step
1: Snow Sam Studios.
0: Well, actually... Did
1: I stutter?